0: tell you right now, Mr. Dan, that I plan on making many jokes about the shape of the earth and also the legal right to be barefoot in all situations granted by the Constitution and our many, many fallen heroes. I like people who are committed, so uh, fair enough. It's wonderful to have you joining us today on America's only locally sourced and artisanally handcrafted podcast, The Discourse, Um, Mr. Dan. I've been following your work for a while. And you know what, I, I can't do your bona fides or your work justice. Why don't you tell people like what, you know, what you're about a little bit so we can just get that going.
1: All right, sure. Uh, I am the executive editor of the American Prospect. Uh, I've been doing that for about a year. Uh, before that, I was a freelance journalist, wrote for The Intercept, New Republic, uh, you know, here, there, and everywhere. I uh, wrote a book in 2016 called Chain of Title, which was about the foreclosure crisis, uh, I guess maybe we should call it Foreclosure Crisis One, because we might have a second one coming up here real soon. Uh, And I have a book coming out actually in July uh, called Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power, uh, which was written over the course of the last year before everything changed, but still has a lot of resonance, I feel, um, uh, really about... This age of monopoly that we have and biggest companies in the <laughs> economic sector are getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, that's something that after the crisis, we're only going to see accelerate. So uh, that's what I've been up to. And uh, that's
0: about it. That sounds wonderful, uh, David. I, just, I don't, you know, don't want to be a Monday morning quarterback. And I'm sure you have an editor for your book. But I would like to suggest you, you know, na- rename it to Miss Monopolized. Just to capitalize on that, you know, sweet, sweet SEO branding well that's going on right now. <laughs> books, books are hard to move. I, know. I tried
1: very hard to not use any Monopoly <laughs> branding.
0: I can't blame you. Milton Bradley is litigious. I mean, they don't have any board games about suing people, but I'm sure you know they have a team of lawyers who specialize in just you know just that. Well,
1: it's actually Parker Brothers, but you know the story of the the board game Monopoly, right? So it was invented by someone who was criticizing Monopoly, and Parker Brothers stole it and and made it a more of a celebration of monopoly <laughs> sold the game and stole it out from under him and there was a long lawsuit for many many years There's actually a book just about this um uh by i'm forgetting her name who the writer was but uh, i've worked with her but I, I don't
0: remember her name right now but um but that's the story of Monopoly. But that's a really convoluted story. For no offense to, you know, creator of Monopoly for a kind of shitty board game. Uh, no one. I've never met anyone who enjoyed playing Monopoly. I don't want to. I don't want to. No, we're not allowed in my family. We we always we start screaming at each other if we start playing. We get hyper competitive. That's the experience. I don't think I've ever made to a game of Monopoly without ending like a fight. <laughs> I still think that they made a mistake by not naming the lady Karen Capitalism as opposed to Miss Monopoly. But I, I we're getting we're getting too far off track. Uh, I do want to start. Uh, David, you know, do you just release a new piece today in the prospect and for your uh, unsanitized? I believe it's the name of your newsletter slash running column. Uh, the K Street bailout would apply to practically every trade group. Uh, well, you know what? Why don't you tell us what this piece is about? Actually,
1: last week it came out that a number of uh, trade groups was really lobbying firms. Uh, you know, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers Association, or Pharma, the Chamber of Commerce, the American Petroleum Institute, these kind of uh, industry trade groups who are coalitions of different industry actors who lobby in Washington. Uh, it turns out they were lobbying for something else, which was free money for themselves. They, they were lobbying to change... The Paycheck Protection Program, which is this thing uh, that is supposed to go to small businesses to give their workers uh, uh, paychecks, get those paid for for eight weeks. Um, turns out these lobbying firms wanted to be cut in on the deal. Uh, they are structured under the tax code under Section 501C6 of uh, the U.S. Code, and uh, they wanted C6 organizations to be allowed to apply. For these loans, which could uh, run up to $10 million. And if they're done correctly, uh, they get forgiven. So they're really grants. They're free money. Um, and uh, turned out last week that Nancy Pelosi said that she was in favor of doing this, of, of moving it through. Uh, and today, in the legislation, the HEROES Act that came out, uh, that is the case. That, that any C6 organization that has less than 500 employees will be eligible for the PPP, which means they can get a, a free money of up to $10 million. And uh, uh, there's some, some research that was done by an organization called the Democratic Policy Center that looked at, well, how many of these companies would apply? Uh, because you think about a big lobbying organization like Pharma or America's Health Insurance Plans or all these companies, Uh, And you think, wow, they must have thousands of of people on the payroll. Well, it turns out they're all uh, pretty much under 500 employees. Uh, 99.1% of uh, Washington trade groups would apply for that, would would be eligible. And so here you have a situation where these organizations that lobby Washington for a living uh, would then be getting money from uh, Washington, uh, uh, you know, in, in the course of, of this pandemic response. This is, this is you know, th- these are people who uh, are, are, you know, donating to members of Congress all the time. Uh, and now would, uh, Congress would be paying the salary at least uh, for the first eight weeks of, of people who come to them looking for special gifts for their clients, for their big corporation clients. Um, There is no sense in which K Street lobbyists are having a hard time right now. Uh, uh, Practically every piece of legislation that has come out since the crisis has began has been heavily lobbied uh, with a lot of uh, these organizations coming into Congress, calling Congress, saying uh, this is what our clients want, and they're delivering for their clients in, in many respects. Um, uh, when you're talking about pharma, this is uh, the 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 organization that represents drug makers. Uh, drug makers are about to make out like bandits with coronavirus treatments and testing kits and 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 a vaccine down the road. Uh, why would they exactly need to have their 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 trade group get 10 million free dollars when you know the Federal Reserve has already pretty much bailed out the entire corporate sector? Uh, it's almost, it's, it's really an extreme case of double dipping. Uh, and you know, what we know is that members of Congress often spin out into the private sector and, and into lobbying firms, uh, uh, often, uh, after they finish their, their, uh, their house of representatives or Senate careers. So, uh, you have now Congress, uh, deciding to give a kickback to, Uh, their potential future employer in that sense. So for so many reasons, this, I think, is really infuriating. And now, you know, there's been a lot of frenzy over the PPP program, like the the wrong companies are getting the loans. And I, I, I think that's gone overboard to some respect. But in this case, when you're talking about K Street lobbying firms getting public money I think that is way
2: beyond them. Yeah, I agree 100%. And one of the things I was reading was that this was, it seems to have been put in almost by, with no, no input from the mass of the Democratic Party even. It was just put in by the House almost by Nancy Pelosi. Is that correct? Well,
1: I mean, the whole bill was constructed by Nancy Pelosi with no input because we have a situation where we have a one woman Congress right now. Um, uh, uh, the last four bills have been these take it or leave it jobs where uh, members get a sheet of paper with uh, the bill on it uh, or many sheets of paper. And uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi just says, here, vote for this. Uh, uh, you, you had no say in the matter. And this is just another one of those. Now, there was a bill that was released that had this language in it that would open up the, the PPV program to C6s And it had 54 Democrats in support of it and 16 Republicans. Uh, and Nancy pretty much took that wholesale. The speaker took that wholesale, uh, and, and put it into the bill. Um, but to say that there was input on any part of the heroes act is, is just not true. Nancy Pelosi wrote this herself, her, well, not her, but her lieutenants, her, her staff wrote this unilaterally and presented it to the caucus as, as completed. Uh, And that's been the history for the last two months of of the crisis.
2: Yeah, I I was I was reading again, like there was a a portion that was a paycheck guarantee that was put forward by some people on the Progressive Caucus. And they had like 60 people who were backing it, but they couldn't get it to they couldn't get anyone to vote on it uh, because Nancy wouldn't allow that. And then they tried to put it into this omnibus. And Nancy said, well, it doesn't have legislative language, but they couldn't get legislative language because they wouldn't get approval from Nancy.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting part of this. Uh, Ryan Grimm from The Intercept has been writing about this. Uh, uh, the, you know, nobody in Congress writes legislation. So like Nancy Pelosi or Pramila Jayapal or AOC, they don't sit down and write legislation. What they do is there's an office in the House of Representatives. Uh, I forget exactly what it's called, like the Legislative Analyst Office or something. Uh, and, and that's a group of lawyers that knows how to write Congressional legislation, and they tell that office what they want, and that office writes the legislation, and gives it back to them. And so there's a bottleneck right now in that office because everyone's working from home, including that office, and uh, so they have a limited amount of things they can get to, and really only Pelosi and top committee chairs are able to get their bills written right now. So. Jayapal, even though she had widespread support, wow. was kind of locked out of this process. And then Pelosi turns around and says, well, we couldn't put the bill in because there was no language. But the only reason there was no language is because they couldn't get the language uh, because of this bottleneck. So. Uh, uh, it's, it's a very, very much a catch 22, uh, that was put in place. And, and, and that's really just an excuse, you know, Pelosi didn't want that in the bill. And, and so, uh, uh, that's, that's what
2: happened. I mean, that's, this gets to something, a central argument that we're not argument, but it's something we talk about constantly on the show, which is whether the Democrats are feckless or incompetent, it doesn't really matter because the end result is the same. And this just puts one in the, the, uh, corner of corrupt and feckless. I think Pelosi is quite confident. You know, she's
1: loving this. Uh, nobody bothers her. She doesn't She doesn't have to worry about committees or, you know, really anything involving Congress. She gets to write legislation, cut deals with Republicans, uh, and, and present it as a fait accompli. Uh, and that's what we've been seeing for the last two months. Now, Jayapal, for the first time, really, in two months, kind of pushed back on this Style of governance was really kind of dis- disenfranchising to the entire Democratic Caucus, and you've heard Nery pete. But Jai Paul today said, you know, she apparently spoke up in a caucus meeting, wondered why her legislation wasn't part of the bill. Uh, later today, uh, she and Mark Pocan, who are the co-chairs of the Progressive Caucus, wrote a letter and said uh, to Pelosi, "You can't put this bill on the floor on Friday." Uh, we'll only have a, a matter of hours to read it. We, we won't have any chance to, to, to discuss the legislation. Why are you doing this so fast? Uh, I don't think that's going to stop Pelosi. Uh, but you could see, you know, I mean, in the first four bills of this thing, only one of them got a no vote from a member of the Democratic caucus that was AOC on the last legislation. Uh, if, if Jayapal is this upset, I suspect that, that, you know, we'll, we'll see more people opposed and, and, you know, and on this one, which is, was done without Republican input. This is just, this is a fake message bill, right? It was just done to set a marker for future negotiations. Uh, all the Republicans are going to be against it. So, uh, there is a window there. If Jayapal picks up a number of other Democrats that are willing to say no, where uh, they can they can block this bill uh, conceivably. And, uh, you know, so Pelosi has to kind of think about that, although I'm sure she'll twist arms. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, when you when you talk about just sort of hapless, uh, that that describes a lot of, you know, these these self-styled progressives that when push comes to shove, they don't actually uh, vote uh, uh, in in a way that will inconvenience uh, the, the Democratic leadership and the speaker. Uh, so that will be interesting to see as this goes on as we move into Friday when this is supposed to be on the floor. Um, but, you know, as I said, Pelosi very competent and, uh, uh, you know, she 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 knows what she wants. And uh, this because this was a messaging bill, you have to believe that this represents the sum total of the most ambitious thing they could possibly think of uh, uh, to do. And, you know, some things in it are OK. A uh, trillion dollars for the states and local governments to prevent a depression in the, uh, at the state level. That's good. Um, there, there are other parts of it that are they're that decent enough. Um, you know, the Jayapal thing, the, the idea there is that instead of this unemployment uh, boost to unemployment insurance that, and, and that disconnects people from their jobs and then forces them to find health insurance because our health insurance is tied to our jobs, why not just keep people on the payroll and have the government pay the payrolls? You know, we've seen this in the UK. We've seen this in Denmark and uh, all over the world uh, where it's just government provided payroll support. Essentially, your payroll company just bills the government instead of billing the, the, the company itself uh, for the funds to, to pay out workers. And then workers, you know, can come in or not or stay at home or whatever. Uh, depending on what their employer needs, um, and still get paid at at their normal salary, uh, with their normal benefits, uh, and and you know not be disconnected from their 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 workplace. Uh, whereas if you push people to unemployment by boosting unemployment and by doing you know uh, very little uh, on the front of keeping businesses open or live, uh, you know there's a short term boost. Uh, in, in, at the low end, uh, it's actually more lucrative for people to be on unemployment in the short term. Uh, of course, that program expires in J- July. The HEROES Act extends it, but there's you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, pushback on the Republican side to, to end that, that boost. Uh, but the question is what happens after, right? I mean, uh, if, if, there are, if there are no businesses left, if there's, there's no business to be had, if there are no jobs to be had, Uh, And eventually that unemployment boost runs out, then where do you leave people uh, compared to if you keep businesses alive by paying the payrolls uh, for the duration of the crisis? So these are just different philosophies, really, of how you deal with this crisis. Um and uh you know uh you can you can say I I think you can say pros and cons for each actually.
0: So I'm actually in agreement with you, David. I think that people and you know at least when people talk about Nancy Pelosi a lot of times they kind of insinuate that she well I mean they kind of fall on two sides of the coin. Either they put they put forth the you know she is very effective in a very sort of value neutral way. Like she gets the things done that she wants to get done as though as an objective you know positive or that she is operating in some world where she's still trying to figure out like the best way to instill progressive values into like the democratic party's platform and get them through to the republican but i mean i agree with you i think that she is looking after the interests that best serve her and best serve keeping her in her seat but you know to your point and i think this is the part that i am kind of but we've been kind of toying with with the show when we talk to guests and we talk to our, you know amongst ourselves about coronavirus and not necessarily the lobbyists who I will say I'm disappointed that you guys don't think that the lobbyists are the real heroes in America. Uh you know, that's a that that hurts me deeply. But you know we'll move. We'll move on. We'll move on towards a more amicable future. Uh, you know the question because we've been trying to with the idea of like well we know that unemployment is at record numbers now. We know that more and more people, as you alluded to earlier, are defaulting on their rent, which is causing, which may or may not cause another housing crisis in the form of rentals now. And I'm wondering like what you think Nancy Pelosi's end goal here is. You know for the Democratic Party. I think you really have to go back to uh, the
1: first big bill to address this crisis. Uh, because, you know, you can't talk about this bill without that context. Uh, what we know is that uh, Mitch McConnell wrote, uh, jumped out, wrote this uh, really offensive bill that had this giant corporate bailout in it, everything Republicans wanted, and, uh You know, Democrats didn't really speak to their priorities until it was that was complete. And then they added a few things here and there, kind of a hodgepodge, things that contradict each other. Like we're going to pay payrolls to keep small businesses alive, but we're also going to incentivize unemployment by making it more attractive. And now those things work at complete cross purposes with one another because uh, people who were laid off by small businesses don't want to come back. But the only way that the loan program uh, uh, makes sense for small businesses is if they get those individuals back, right? So there was this hodgepodge that was just sort of added on, like add on this good thing, this good thing, and this good thing. Uh, And in exchange for all of that, which was temporary, uh, Republicans got this giant corporate bailout that will permanently change the landscape of the US economy, right? So it seems to me Republicans knew what they wanted from the beginning. We have a pandemic. We need to save the the investor class and the executive class at these large corporations. That's what we need to do. We are laser focused. In in the first big chance we get, we're going to get this corporate bailout. And then they did it. And Pelosi uh, was in a position where... She didn't really have any kind of first principle of, well, what, what do we have to do here right away? Uh, she had a hodgepodge of, of, you know, different ideas that came to her from members of her caucus or from special interest or wherever. And there were just, you know, an, a, a, a jumble of 50 ideas and a wish list. And uh, she got a couple of those into the bill so she could call them wins, that initial bill. And then the rest of the wish list ideas are now in this HEROES Act, which comes after Republicans got everything they wanted. You know, Republicans already got the giant corporate bailout. McConnell is talking about getting corporate immunity for businesses that have workers or employees or customers contract COVID-19 on their premises. Uh, But in my view, the, the, the legal community is already so bias towards corporations anyway, that there's no way any kind of lawsuit like that would get off the ground. And plus, if you're a worker or a customer, you've probably signed an arbitration agreement to settle all those cases outside the court system. So uh, immunity is kind of a a red herring in my view. Um, What what Republicans really wanted, they got. What Democrats really want, they don't know what they really want. And so they jumbled all these things into a wish list that is never going to come true. Uh, and it just shows you how the two parties operate. They just operate completely differently. Uh, and, and, and Pelosi's goal is to hold on to power. I mean, that, that's, and, and, you know, to be fair, that's McConnell's goal too. Um, uh, uh, but but they, they go about it in different ways. And, uh, you know, when push comes to shove, Republicans know how to govern, and, uh, or at least they know how to reach their goals. They don't necessarily know how to govern. I mean, you see what Trump's doing. But uh, they, know how to, they know how to reach the goals that they want. They want lower taxes. They want corporations to be saved. Uh, Democrats don't know <laughs> what they, they, they want. And they don't really know how to govern to get them. So, uh, so you get
2: this, this sort of chaos. So we, we constantly make a, the, the observation on the show that it's not – we disagree like slightly but sort of agree that it's not that the Democrats don't know how to govern. It's that they – by virtue of the composition of their party, they functionally can't govern because by doing anything that would benefit their base and and excite their voters, they would automatically alienate anyone who would donate money to the upper classes and and to the people who have influence within the upper echelons of the party. So they just are at this point where they just can't do anything. They're completely stymied. And so what you end up with is, like you said, this wish list that is mostly just bailouts of, of you know uh, what they do they gave Cuomo like a special carve out so that he can cut Medicaid they they gave um a, an upper class tax cut to blue states they gave you know all, all of these things that are essentially for their donors and then say oh, okay here's this this other stuff where we will extend unemployment we'll do this a trillion dollars that you were talking about to the people but the fact that none of this was even fought for in the first bill when it was just Schumer and Pelosi sitting in like either a conference call or what have you with McConnell. And like you said, they got the DOGOP got everything they wanted shows that like, you know, Pelosi wants this stuff, too. Like she, she talks about Pete Peterson having the right idea uh, for the economy and right idea for Social Security. You know, Schumer is one of the single uh, largest recipients of Wall Street money in uh, Congress history. You know, so is Cory Booker that's who runs the party. And it gets to this idea where like you said, the GOP got what they wanted. Well, it's gonna fundamentally change the landscape of American business because we had completely inflated and created a fragile economy for this. And then all of a sudden you had all of the money, just the input money just dry up. And so all the back end was coming due and they needed to do this. Otherwise with the crash would have been exponentially and horribly bad for the upper 1% not necessarily for everybody else, because it would have just been a devaluation of assets which nobody owns anymore because, you know, post 2008, that's all gone to the top. I mean, you can even see it now with COVID. What have the billionaires made and trillionaires and made in the past two months, like a a return of like 20% while everyone else has lost 50%. It's crazy. And, And when you see like this, the fortune 500 buying, when you see the Fortune 500 spending profits on open market stock buybacks and then on the back end using collateralized debt obligations to, uh, and loan obligations to just uh, commodify their supply chain debt to create more opportunities to buy back their own stock, you have to wonder what the fuck is going on?
1: Yeah. I mean, you're, you're bringing a, couple, a bunch of stuff together there. Uh, first of all, the most remarkable thing about this disconnect between an April in which 20.5 million Americans lost their job and an April in which uh, the stock market from its low on March 23rd to the end of April went up 31%. the, 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 The amazing thing about that dichotomy is that the Federal Reserve has not yet spent a dollar of what they were appropriated in the CARES Act. It's all been announcement effect. They've announced they will do this. They've announced they will do that. They have $4.5 trillion of firepower. And that announcement was enough to give confidence to the markets and to the investor class that they would be taken care of. And they are so sure of it that they have decided to do business as usual in the midst of a, the second great depression. It's absolutely remarkable. Um, and it shows you the degree to which we've had this fairy tale economy that the Fed has propped up for about the last decade. So that's the first thing. Uh, and I'm actually writing a, a pretty large about that exact thing uh, you know, right now uh, that'll hopefully be out in the next few days. Um, so that's number one. Number two, uh, when you talk about uh, Democrats and this this push and pill within their caucus between, uh, the the sort of historic uh, uh, concepts of, of the party of the people and uh, the, the the party of the donor class uh, this is something that is historical in nature I mean it, it goes back to the 1980s and Tony Coelho who was the head of the Democratic campaign Committee congressional campaign committee in the early 80s uh, his top deputy was Terry McAuliffe, and uh, there's a great book by a man named Brooks Jackson called Honest Graft, which describes Coelho in all his glory. And he was the guy that really got uh, the corporate class on the side of the Democrats. He recognized that unions were falling apart, that uh, there there were other sources of, of, of funding were drying up, so they had to go to the executive suites and they had to go to Wall Street. And that's where they would get their war chest. Now, what did we learn in 2016 and 2020, and to an extent 2018 as well, is that there uh, is enough power in numbers within the democratic grassroots that you don't necessarily have to rely on that anymore if you offer people uh, something tangible, if you offer people uh, a, a different conception of uh, what this, this, this country can look like. Uh, uh, you saw that Bernie Sanders, and to a lesser extent, but still to a pretty large extent, Elizabeth Warren in 2020, and a lot of your uh, uh, grassroots uh, candidates for Congress in 2018 and 2020, two of the highest uh, 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 raising Congressional candidates this in in the 2020 cycle are Katie Porter and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, uh, and they're doing it without high dollar uh, fundraising. Uh, and the same with Sanders and Warren; they were doing it without high dollar fundraising. Um, so you know uh, there is another way. <laughs> they, they, this conflict can be solved, right? There, there, there is another way forward. It's just not the way forward. That the current democratic leadership and a lot of the members of the caucus are comfortable with they uh they got in this business to do uh uh things on behalf of uh you know they they, they want this tension they want to have to cater to the corporate class so that's the easy road right they, all they have to do is uh you know write down what their their donors say and then enact it and that's that's the easy part right uh, it's the producers. If you're, if you're actually wanting to benefit the people. You have to it's go the out. Yeah, you have to you have to go out and listen to them, and you have to you have to uh, uh, you know pay uh, pay attention to their interests, and 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 be willing to take shots from corporate America, uh, and 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 from special interests, and 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 from traditional high dollar individuals, uh, and that's harder. And and you know a lot of the 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 leadership class of the democrats does not want to do that so that's the source of the tension right now it's not that democrats are stuck it's that the second option that they could take they don't really want to take
3: i'll just hop in there and i think that's one of the real one of the key things that's really stuck out to me both in discussion and looking over the articles is about the fundamental and structural changes that are being uh, undertaken by the republican party and as you mentioned, their ability to kind of zero in on what it is they're trying to accomplish and then accomplish it using this catastrophe, this pandemic, as kind of the impetus in that they've uh, gathered by giving some concessions for what you mentioned are temporary and often inadequate. And as uh, a lot of people are reporting, they still haven't even gotten the $1,200 checks or even their normal tax returns as a result of the delays uh, uh, that have come about. And In exchange for those temporary reliefs, they've been able to both redistribute massive amounts of wealth upwards, as we've seen kind of in the optimistic stock market that you've described and among the billionaires that John talked about as well, but also in the destruction of the... uh, smaller and local businesses in favor of larger corporate conglomerates while also giving not only just them bailouts but also their lobbyist representatives and i, I just feel like the the larger structural aspect of this is uh, being underplayed in exchange or in favor of some of the more sensational stuff like the you know the lakers getting a, the bailout or whatever in particular rather than the kind of structural things that it those instances speak to
2: yeah i mean like just the fact that boeing is it turned down Boeing turned down CARES money because they didn't want to lay anybody off and then got a $25 billion backstop from the Fed in the bond market. Like that, that right there should have been a red flag for everybody. And, and I mean, Boeing, because of the 737 and, and gross fucking mismanagement over the past decade, Boeing was in serious trouble. And yet now Boeing is a perfect example of how this entire thing was just to backstop all these corporations that were in trouble and get them whole and get their investors made whole and fuck over everybody else
1: there's no question that boeing was getting a bailout for their decade of irresponsibility not for the suddenness of the pandemic they're they're using that as a convenient pretext to clean up all of this disaster that the mismanagement of the company has led them to Uh, and yes uh, they uh, skillfully avoided the conditions that would have been placed on direct money from the federal reserve by getting indirect money from the Federal Reserve, because the credit markets were pried open by the Fed's announcement that they would buy junk bonds and corporate debt of any kind, shape or or color. Uh, And that's how they were able to uh, 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 secure $25 million in bonds. Uh, But for the Fed's actions, uh, Boeing would be a partially or maybe largely public company today. It, it, it would be owned by all of us. Uh, and now, maybe we don't want to own Boeing at this point, uh, but uh, it, we would have had a significant stake, significant equity in that company if the Fed didn't uh, uh, make this decision to buy up all this corporate debt and reopen the credit markets. So, um, so that's absolutely right. And uh, the other point. Is the, the difference in scale between what we are doing for large corporations and investors versus what we are doing for uh, small businesses and individuals uh, uh, who are who are struggling right now. And, and and you'd hit the nail on the head if you if you really look at the numbers, uh, about $650 billion has been earmarked for small businesses. In small increments, $10 million at, at, at tops. Uh, the the average loan size in the second round of funding for PPP is something like $79,000. Uh, uh, believe me, that's not going to be the average of the Federal Reserve lending once the money starts going out the door. Uh, the total number that, that the Fed is playing with is about $4.5 trillion. Uh, so, you know, you're seeing many multiples, uh, over six times as much money in the large corporate sector as in the small business sector. And uh, you know what that's simply going to mean is because there are, is almost an equivalency in terms of uh, how much GDP is generated by the large business sector and the small business sector, in terms of how much employment is in the small business sector versus the large business sector. But the multiples of money is just much higher in, uh, among the large corporates. So what are you gonna see? You're gonna see small businesses die out uh, by the millions and large businesses largely propped up. And uh, when we return to that, I mean, we think about that in terms of restaurants and the corner hardware store, the corner uh, dry cleaner or something, but it's also you know component part makers and uh, niche manufacturing companies and whatever competitors are left to the big giants in every industry in the country, and uh, you're just gonna see less competition out there. I mean, uh, these small businesses are gonna die, and the big businesses are gonna stay, and they're gonna capture more and more market share. And that was a choice, that was a policy choice made by the structure of the CARES Act, uh, uh, largely put forward by Mitch McConnell, and then tweaked very subtly uh, by by Nancy Pelosi and 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 Chuck Schumer. So uh, uh, this is the choice that we have made, and it's hard to unwind that choice with new legislation, really, uh, uh, unless unless you're willing to to find the numbers at that level. You look at this this uh, Heroes Act, right? And this is the model that the Pelosi-led House of Representatives has taken for every piece of legislation uh, in the last two years. They put everything together in one big bill and say, aha, now Mitch McConnell can't ignore us because we have we have added all this good stuff into one bill. And obviously uh, it, it's 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 going to cause a groundswell in the country. Now, what we know is that they couldn't get attention for any of their bills uh, when they did this. Time and time again, throughout 2019, so they had HR one, that was the uh, the, the money in politics bill. Uh, they had a big immigration bill. They had a big climate bill. Uh, all of these bills went into the legislative graveyard of Mitch McConnell, and it gave a nice, you know, talking point like Mitch McConnell. You know, there's 250 bills. You can take them up tomorrow, uh, but it didn't do anything in terms of governing. Mitch McConnell bided his time, waited for uh, this, this, you know, ha- this opportunity that was created by this crisis and said, okay, here we go, Let corporate bailout, let's do it. And he got it done. He didn't like come up with a committee to come up with the wish list of 50 items that, that Republicans really, really wanted and, and, and put them into a bill and dared Nancy Pelosi to, to stop it. No. He 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 boiled it down to the one thing he really really wanted, and he put it in the bill, and he said, "This is it." Uh, and and Democrats went along with it. So uh, there's just it's just different styles of governing, and you know, the Politico put out that's it's sort of rundown of the bill, and they had right in the rundown of the bill met, uh, 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 quotes from Democratic aides who said, just sort of flat out, Democrats acknowledge that their proposal is more of a talking point than legislation they expect to become law. So, I mean, it's all just theatrical. It's not not a serious effort. And, and, uh, you know, at some point, you can keep doing these theatrical bills, but people are gonna get tired of it. And I'm certainly tired of it. I don't report on these big bills very much because I don't, I I give them the amount of importance that I feel like they deserve, which is very little.
0: I mean, for me, it seems as though a democratic party has turned into like an HR memo parading as the democratic party. It's like, there are a lot of like pomp and circumstance and like really, really well-crafted language. And, but when it boils down to it, like whether this stuff is going to be implemented, you'll have to wait three, four, five, maybe six months to find out. And it probably won't ever be implemented. But, you know, at the same time, you know, you're right a lot of these bills are theatrics but i agree with both you and john that like they're bad at theatrics they're bad at theatrics because they don't have the the like the i don't know the moral clarity to go forward with that full bore they they become conciliatory they may you know make it clear that they're just doing it theatrically to begin with which i you know you mentioned elizabeth warren and bernie sanders to begin with i think it ultimately hurts you know it doesn't necessarily hurt the Nancy Pelosi's of the party, but I think it definitely hurts the Elizabeth Warren's and Bernie Sanders of the party, who for them, like, you know, these big policy, big bill, uh, you know, large structural uh, programs that harken back to like the core concept of the democratic party, pre you know, pre neoliberalism, pre Carter, pre Clinton days is, is, you know, that's their bread and butter. But for, you know, the more liberal base, the less sort of like working class people of color base, like that kind of politicking, I think is is just foreign. It's like they like they're they're used to these big you know symbolic you know meaningless conciliatory gestures from from the Democratic Party as just like you know standard, and so we know the the idea of an elizabeth warren the idea of a bernie sanders who like their main selling point is like actually they're trying to get things done you know either through large policies that they plan implementing or but you know essentially just like hook or crook uh like it comes across as a little in, 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 in many ways a little bit crass like the idea of politics in some ways to the democrats like it feels as though it embarrasses them sometimes that they might have to get their hands dirty with actually advocating yeah, I mean, for themselves
1: I I, I I think those are good insights but You know, I mean, one thing that you have to say and you can't really let him off the hook for this is that Sanders voted for the corporate bailout bill. So did Warren. That bill passed 96 to nothing. And there hasn't been a hell of a lot of dissent towards Pelosi's uh, unilateral tactics over the last two months either. Uh, You know, you have to sort of put this on progressives a little bit, too. Uh, in, in Congress and even outside of Congress. I mean, one thing that was pretty appalling today, and I'll probably write about it tomorrow, is that there's this big fight between uh, Jayapal and Pelosi over this payroll support. And uh, Jayapal said, you know, we need to slow down this bill and try to figure out uh, what the best path forward is. And move on, Individual, all the, the lefty groups, immediately endorsed the HEROES Act. They endorsed Pelosi's bill. They undermined Jayapal's position. Jayapal's finally coming out and fighting against the leadership, saying you're taking this in the unilateral direction and not listening to your caucus. And all the uh, groups, you know, in in the old days of uh, where I used to work, Fire Dog Lake, we used to call it the veal pen, uh, all these groups, who are nicely well fed and, and they get access? They all took the side of Pelosi on this fight, which was amazing. I mean, this these are the same people who just a couple weeks ago, when the the interim bill passed, were saying we have red lines. The next bill has to have these various features, uh, and one of them was Jayapal's to you know uh, uh, paycheck support. That was one of the red lines that uh groups like indivisible and public citizen were, were were calling for and then they just abandoned it they just completely abandoned it. so the the left has no coherence either that's the that's the other problem with this is
2: that i was just gonna say like i i just don't consider indivisible or any of those groups really left though i i consider them the same way that we have you know like HRC is now saying that the number one company to work at for anyone who's of queer identity is Raytheon, and they literally have. They one of the biggest clients is Saudi Arabia, where they help like build systems to hunt down gay people. So like these organizations have kind of just like the Democratic Party, they're all about rhetoric. I get it,
1: John. I I, I probably should have called it the professional left. Uh, these are you know those kinds of groups, mainstream <laughs> liberal groups in D.C. Uh, I'm not talking about the, the you know the the, the the actual left, that I mean, to the extent there is a left in America, uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, <laughs> the, the, new,
0: the new, yeah, the new Black, Black Panther party. The new Black Panther party is I'm
1: talking about the progressive groups that are usually aligned with the progressive caucus, who completely went off the reservation to support Pelosi on this, which is insane. And uh, you know, it, it's it's indicative of the fact that the the left really needs to the, the real left needs to, to completely rebuild these structures from scratch. I mean, there, there's, there's nothing out there, there's very little out there to grab onto uh, and, and, and say that this is something we can build on. Uh, the, the, you know, progressives are really have shown themselves to be in the wilderness in this pandemic uh, crisis. Uh, they, they have no real yep. governing power. They have no coherence to their, their idea formation. Uh, And they they have no way to to influence events. And and they've been kind of just hapless.
2: And do you think a lot of that has to do with Sanders' losses?
1: Well, I I mean, again, Sanders voted for this bill. I mean, I, I, I hate to keep coming back to that, but... Uh, you know, he didn't even know I agree just, with you. He, he shouldn't have. And, it, you know, why is the left adrift? I mean, you know, there, we're starting from a very low number in, in, in terms of a beachhead in Congress. Um, obviously, the pandemic has made it even more difficult to, to, to get things going. And uh, the Sanders campaign took a lot of energy, uh, I think, uh, away from these congressional fights, uh, and and you know appropriately, the presidency is an important position, um, but uh, it did uh, pull focus in a big way, uh, in which point you, you all of a sudden had this crisis, and and those are the moments in which Congress really governs and really legislates, and we didn't have sort of that that you know energy and 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 action available. Because a lot of people were were still, you know, in the middle of a hot primary fight.
0: I mean, I'm still in the middle of a hot primary fight. I'm still I'm still in search of Joe Biden. I'm still wondering where you know where he is. Last I heard, he was a hologram. Uh, so you know, still waiting on more information there. I mean. If we're going to be theory crafting, from my perspective, I wonder if we could put, you know, you know, Bernie Sanders be, you know, Bernie Sanders being unable to sort of overcome, you know, everyone coalescing behind Biden and also the sort of nonprofit liberal progressive space in D.C. sort of coalescing or at least not challenging hard enough uh, Nancy Pelosi's corporate handouts.
1: I think the other thing is that they're there is a little bit of an unwillingness to play the kind of politics that are sometimes necessary to show uh, political muscle. So, I mean, people talk about Bernie, uh, the moment that comes for me is when Zephyr Teachout, who was a Bernie uh, uh, surrogate, writes an op-ed in The Guardian talking about Biden being corrupt, and Bernie disassociates completely with that op-ed, and says i think joe biden's a good guy uh because he was nice to me uh throughout my senate career and uh you know i'm not going to call him corrupt uh and you know that kind of showed that he didn't have the back of the people on his own team to some respect and that tension was there throughout the campaign and i'll relate that to the the house of representatives uh the the relative silence on pelosi's actions and tactics not putting remote voting together for two months so that she could sort of govern congress unilaterally uh, uh all of these those kinds of things not uh you know it doesn't take a big block to get together and say uh look we will not vote for this bill or we will not vote you in as speaker next year if you continue with these tactics that ignore the bulk of the caucus and uh, there's just a lack of uh killer instinct within uh within democratic progressive circles you know uh progressives progress is in there and they they they, they try to find a way to get to yes and they don't want to deprive people they don't want to be a freedom caucus of the left there, there's this sort of internal tension around that they they, they want to be uh, seen as 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 facilitating rather than uh, always being a party of uh, uh, you know a caucus of no and so uh, you know the leadership recognizes that and they know that they can roll the progressive caucus so they're not going to pay as much attention to them they're not going to take them as seriously as they need to um, and so I think that that failing within the House of Representatives and the progressive caucus can be related to the failing in the electoral context of Bernie's campaign to really, you know, uh, uh, take the steps necessary against Joe Biden that 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 would have. You know, uh, maybe done some things different. Yeah, name and shame your enemies
0: is a really big thing in both instances. We are not Bernie apologists on this show. We we are in one hundred percent agree, one hundred percent agreement that especially when it comes to the South, that Bernie did not do everything that was necessary. You know, even if you want to put forward the idea that that you know the the situation with Biden could have, you know, could have ended up the same way he still could have won all the same states it doesn't necessarily absolve bernie and his camp from doing not doing everything that they could have done to not only win but to convince voters that they had a good chance of winning and also to just like improperly inform voters about the what you know what is happening with no joe biden's corruption what's happening with nancy pelosi and democratic party and their sort of corporate ties we feel he didn't go that far, far enough on that point Uh, Yeah, I mean, anecdotally,
2: one of the things that I kept talking about is when I was go knock doors in New Hampshire, you know, almost everybody who wasn't voting for Bernie thought every single candidate that they were supporting was for Medicare for all except for
0: uh, Klobuchar. I guess my follow up question to that, though, is that do you think that. I mean, do you think that this is going to—so, like, we're, not, we're now in the midst of a pandemic. You know, we're two months in. It doesn't seem like it's going to be lifted in a while. Uh, Nancy Pelosi puts this bill out. You know, we this is all happening under the backdrop of Joe Biden being Joe Biden and, you know, the the hot primary. Do you think that this might be, if not the, you know, the final straw for the Progressive Caucus and are sort of aligned, you know, D.C. think tank progressive groups? uh like that this might contribute to a more like this might be the not necessarily strata the camel's back but might be the catalyst for some sort of changing the dynamic between these two parties becoming less conciliatory less mid let's say less uh you know improv minded yes and based and more like standing their ground on more like you know essentially more progressive ideals for lack of a better term or this is going to be what we you know what we what we experience long into the future where you know i, I kind of
1: do and, uh, you know, I'll preview this tomorrow. Uh, we're putting out my, uh, feature piece from the next, uh, for the, our next issue of the prospect, you know, we, we do a print edition six times a year. And, uh, it's about the Biden campaign. Um, and I actually talked to people within the Biden campaign and I talked to people who were being wooed by the Biden campaign. Uh, and, and, you know, some of these, some of these, uh, professional left groups that are, are being, that are talking to the Biden campaign. And the thing that, uh, struck me about it was that I looked back to the new deal and the origins of the new deal. And, uh, there were two things that sort of came together. One that Roosevelt brought together a brain trust of uh people that included figures who were willing to enact you know bold experimentation to come up with ideas anything they could do to get us out of the, the 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 terrible economic hole that we were in for four years uh prior uh to him becoming president so personnel is very important and uh you know i look at Sort of the good and the bad there. Uh, Ted Kaufman, who was Biden's longtime chief of staff, he was senator and he was actually a pretty good progressive senator, uh, was really hard on the banks, actually, uh, in 2009, 2010. Uh, he's the head of the transition team. So that's a, a good thing. Also, Larry Summers is an economic advisor uh, uh, informally to the campaign. The other part of it that uh, I, I looked at was uh how the New Deal was really responding to anger and uh, demands out in the countryside. So there's this great book called Money, Power, and the People by Christopher Shaw, which just came out last year. And it's about this unbelievable amount of public anger that there was, such that uh, most, uh, or or at least this was, uh, Shaw's book is really about Banking and 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 the 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 banking rules that came into play after the Great Depression, uh, like Glass Steagall, for example. Everybody knows Glass Steagall. This is sort of the separation of investment and commercial banks. is seen as a real uh, a progressive achievement that kept us uh, safe uh, from the financial industry for fifty years or more. Uh, it turns out that was a compromise bill uh, that was the public was screaming for full nationalization of the banking sector and uh, complete public use of currency and credit and carter glass the glass and glass steagle was a reactionary southern democrat in the 1930s who was a stooge for wall street he was the head of the senate banking committee and he was a total sellout to to banking interests and he came up with this idea as a compromise to get the uh, the, the the public, the farmer groups, the labor groups, uh, uh, to to at least go halfway to them, and that became this this unbelievable liberal legislation called Glass Steagall. Steagall was the the House guy; it was a little more liberal than Glass, uh, but uh, you know the the point is there that depressions and depression level events have a funny way of restarting that responsiveness between the public and the government. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt ran in 1932 on balancing the budget. And he comes into office and he does all these unbelievable things to get us out of the depression. Carter Glass was a a Wall Street stooge, and he does Glass-Steagall. Uh, Because the the public is demanding that uh, – there was literally in West Virginia a resolution that any CEO of a bank that fails be beheaded. I mean that's how tough it was in the countryside at that time. (laughs) Look, man, sometimes. (laughs) And uh, that's how tough it was. And and so Glass comes up with a compromise that is Glass-Steagall. So Joe Biden has no history of being a a, a revolutionary reformer or anything, but the times and the public, and I'm not talking about the professional left groups either, I think this will happen much more organically, the public and the times and the moment might call for him to be something that we haven't seen in him before. And uh, uh, that's that's real. I mean, that that might sound like uh, uh, me being an apologist or something, but that's real. And it looks to history and the history of extreme economic depravity is such that the political system is forced to respond. And so I have this piece coming out tomorrow, actually, that speaks to all of this.
0: I mean, I don't think it sounds like apologetic too much, but I think that, you know, what we've seen from Democratic Party so far uh, has felt like a form of anger management when it comes to like the working class, like that there is this kind of balancing act already being struck between, you know, not only trying to make sure that people don't get too accustomed to the government paying off their payroll or paying off their unemployment or paying for their health care, but also not going too far the other way and allowing enough people to fall into a state of like not necessarily just moderate social and material alienation that defines us right now, but like just a mass of people falling into extreme, extreme maldistribution of their resources, like whether it be housing or food or health care and something full of arising up organically, because I think that's you know at this point that's the only way it can really happen not only because of the w- what you've identified in the professional leftist professional progressive class but also just in the general population this like overall lack of language related to you know not only language related to like uh, capitalism and material conditions and like just sort of like the extraction of wealth but also just like this sort of lack of imagination or. I don't feel like, like it, feels as though the Democratic Party, and I've said this before, has made most people disaggregate like power from politics. And I sense that like the like when you watch Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden or President or former President Obama on the television speaking about the problems of the world, they kind of exist outside of a paradigm where these people have the power to actually solve those problems or meaningfully affect them. And you know, even sans that kind of extreme analysis, even You know, not extreme, even sans that sort of analysis, even without that language, just the sheer lack of resources and the sheer like the the sheer like ubiquity of lack of resources might end with something a little bit more radical, a little bit more, you know, necessary for the public for the politicians to act on than we've seen through more organized leftist movements, you know, or even like, or, you know, or even more sort of astroturfed right wing movements like the uh, like the Tea Party or the um, uh, the new Open Up America uh, (laughs) rallies. I'm sorry, those are hilarious to me.
1: Sort of right wing populism that finds somebody to blame uh, outside of, uh, you know, their, their, their in-group, uh, uh, for, for this problem, whether it's China or the governors who are closing the country or, or whatever, uh, and, and that can rule the day, or, uh, you can sort of see the failure of irresponsible governance in this, uh, and the need for government to take care of its citizens, all of its citizens, and uh, you you come up with a progressive populism and, a, and, a, and, and maybe even a progressive sort of uh, 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 localism where, where we get back to, you know, making things in America and, and having local supply chains rather than uh, having everything made in China and things like that. So uh, uh, there are two ways you can go. And uh, the, the election to one extent is going to determine some of that outcome, but also, you know, the ways in which. The public makes itself known is going to help determine that, not just through, uh, you know, showing up on election day, but but what they do in the spaces in between. You know, there have been over, at last count, hundred and fifty wildcat strike or or workplace shutdown actions since the coronavirus crisis began, uh, from people saying, you know, uh, this workplace is hazardous and I'm not going to take it and. You know, we've seen that at Amazon, where they fired a couple workers for engaging in this activity. Uh, we've seen it at, uh, you know, uh, whether it's uh, the bus riders, uh, bus, bus drivers, I believe, in, in, um, in Alabama. There were uh, garbage workers in, in New Orleans, uh, literally hundreds of actions. And uh, that militancy and, uh, you know, the general public sympathy this idea that we have uh, you know, workers that used to be called unskilled are now called essential, uh, that's, that's a big difference rhetorically and uh, it, it shows that the public is seeing who's important to them now and, and who, who is important in the, the day-to-day functioning of the economy and, and, and their day-to-day lives and understanding that they you know they need to be compensated to the degree of their essential nature. Uh, so, um, you know, it, 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 there are a lot of ways you can go uh, 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 after a crisis. It's not fated that uh, just because there's a pandemic that uh, we're going to get the next FDR. I mean, we had a great recession and we got technocracy, we got Obama. So um, it, it's it's not a done deal, but the, it opens up space. For a different policy conversation and a different conversation about what it means to govern, and uh, so you know uh, that 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 door is open, but you got to go through it.
3: I think the path forward is a very important aspect to what you're drawing there, and I just wanted to go back a bit uh, when you guys were talking about kind of the electorals and the strategic part of that. One of the things that came came to my mind was how Bernie Sanders was treated with the combination of the violence against women act with the crime bill and those kind of amalgamation bills where they just pile everything together. Essentially, it doesn't work to shame Republicans into voting for something, but it does work against the the more progressive wing of their caucus uh, in pressuring them to vote for things or uh, get either for, for things that they don't or against things that they wouldn't otherwise and, or they don't support and that they wouldn't otherwise. And then, Like the other aspect of kind of all of these things that you mentioned before, and then the temporary measures that are in place in these acts, uh, I think one of the aspects that I expect Democrats to campaign on is that the perpetuation of any of these programs that people are now dependent on in order to just barely make ends meet if and when they do get the money to come through are going to be contingent on removing Trump and electing Biden. And so the concept will be, well, if you, if you don't remove Trump, if you don't elect Biden, then we can't promise you that the things that you need to survive are going to continue to keep coming in. And that, that essentially, I imagine is going to more or less be the kind of campaign that's going to be run. And my concern with Biden is that rather than the FDR, we get uh, uh, more of the propo- uh, re- proposal of Republican bills and then conceding even further to the right, to get those Republican bills passed. And so that manifests in Biden's long support of cutting social security. And uh, I guess to kind of tie that into both my question and some of of the things that you've written about is about the way forward and the protests that were, kind of violent and disruptive at the time during the 30s when they were demanding these types of change versus the kind of depictions and the rhetoric around the rather modest protests of you know nurses with uh, putting shoes in front of the capitol and stuff like that uh, but then also i guess you mentioned that there's this push to reopen is not just about kind of a political optics but also about a, a shifting people from unemployment pushing them back into uh these jobs with the temporary emergency you know compensation that is based off of hazard pay but not based off of a a deeper understanding of a of living wage and so like whether democrats moving forward are going to lean into that more temporary and uh lean and kind of side with republicans towards reopening but with and just push on the idea that well we just need to do it more safely rather than not do it or to do it in a more equitable and just way with a living wage rather than The hazard pay or if you see that the uh it's more likely that they're going to just continue to roll over for for republicans a couple things on that one i mean hazard pay is
1: good but the hazards are the problem right so uh uh you know if you talk to labor folks Mm -hmm. they'll tell you that uh, what's far more important is uh, putting in a an emergency standard a workplace standard uh, with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration that says that this is how your business has to run if it's going to be open during the, 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 the COVID-19 crisis. And we don't have that right now. So there are no standards for how a business has to operate under these conditions. And that's why you see things like meatpacking plants have these incredible outbreaks or warehouses like Amazon or, or you know Walmart stores or whatever uh, is is that there are no standards? We're we're just sort of relying on on the tensions between workers and 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 management to to come up with some sort of standard bearing, uh, which is which you know just doesn't work. So um, uh, I'd much rather see a workplace standard than I would hazard pay. Um, uh, if you want to deal with wages, you deal with those through a, a living wage, as you say. Um, so uh, right. You know, as far as Biden is concerned, I mean, it, it's it's a it's up in the air. Uh, you know, there there's this one sense where the the, the moment can force lawmakers who haven't normally shown uh, a, 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 a reformer revolutionary kind of side to them, forces them to to rethink uh, their 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 life, uh, their career, and 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 what is needed in the moment. Uh, at the same time, Biden is 78 years old and, uh, has, has basically followed a particular course for 40 years, uh, in both the Senate and, and in the vice presidency. And uh, you know, it's, it's going to be hard to break out of that. And also he's not a guy that's deep in the details of a lot of these things. And so personnel is going to be that much more important. And if you have a Larry Summers in the mix uh, uh, that, you know, someone who's a bureaucratic infighter knows how to charm, uh, uh, the, his bosses, uh, that that's going to be very difficult to overcome. So, so, you know, it, it, and, and some of that happens on the outside, you know, there was an interesting thing that happened just over the last few days. Uh, so there's this woman named Natasha Sarin, and she is a protege of Summers. She's a student. She was brought into the Biden campaign as an informal Economic advisor by Summers, and uh, last week she put out this paper that said, "Well, one of the things you could do in in this coronavirus crisis is you could allow people to take one percent of their future Social Security earnings and use them now during this crisis, uh, essentially robbing Social Security, uh, robbing you of your future uh, uh, benefits, True. and." Uh, she she put out this paper was really excited about it, said that this, and it turned out that the Hoover Institution and the American Enterprise Institute had cooked up pretty much the same idea and had brought it to the White House, and the White House started thinking about it as a good idea, and uh, on Monday, the Washington Post came out with this, and I noted that uh, you know, this Biden campaign uh, 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 economic advisor put out the same idea less than a week ago in a published academic paper. She's with the University of Pennsylvania, um, and uh, Saren got a lot of pushback online uh, and and through more official channels. And just today, uh, this this afternoon. Uh, on Tuesday, she ran a, a, an opinion piece in Bloomberg that said tapping Social Security would be a big mistake. So that's the headline, essentially disavowing the, uh, the, the, uh, the research paper that she put together, co-authored uh, just a week ago. And it shows that these, that, that these people are movable, that, that uh, uh, you know, the, there is a role to play from the outside. And, uh, you know, Biden himself came out pretty strongly against the whole idea uh, that the, that the White House was pushing. Uh, and it was just pretty easy to point out the hypocrisy of that, of of Biden pushing uh, pushing against this uh, this concept of robbing future Social Security earnings when his own economic advisor had put forward a very similar proposal. Uh, and so she backed off the proposal. So, uh, you know, those opportunities, I think, are going to continue and Biden is going to be in the crosshairs if he gets in to the White House next year of uh, there is going to be 20 percent, 25 percent unemployment. I mean, there's there's going to be carnage economically like we haven't seen in 90 years. And he's going to be in the position where his legacy will rise or fall based on whether he solves that problem. And that tends to concentrate people's minds and, and figure out what the best solution could be, and often those solutions are progressive solutions. So uh, uh, that, that is the choice. It's, it's not definite either way, uh, but you can at least see a path uh, to, to a, a, a
2: different kind of future. You're absolutely right. He hasn't done anything to bring manufacturing jobs back, even though he did campaign on that. Uh, and it, it is interesting to think about a, a localized nationalist, nationalistic economy, um, because the only way to do anything along those lines, I think, would be a, a tariff-based system to foster like a competitive edge for those local-based economies, right? One of the ways is to use more aggressively our Buy American laws.
1: So you create a market, uh, you know, we need... To electrify this country's grid, uh, we need to uh, we need to to change our energy mix. We need to do a green stimulus to uh, completely change uh, what we do on solar panels. Yep. We need to we need to build uh, high speed rail networks around the country. And you could just say that everything around that needs to be sourced locally in the United States. And and there you go. You, you know, you create the yep. market and and then the 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 market has to respond so uh that's one way to do it and that's something we talk about a lot uh that that's you know we did a whole issue on the green new deal and a big part of that was about how to bring manufacturing domestically uh and 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 use the 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 market creating potential of uh uh, greening the economy to uh to accomplish that goal and then find suddenly you bring together Two of the most diametrically opposed uh, groups within uh, the, the the Democratic coalition: the building trades and construction unions, and the environmentalists. So, you know there there are ways there are
2: ways to go around that. No, I'm, I'm sure Richard is going to thinking along the same lines. I am. What do you do uh, in that instance? In since you've written about it, what do you you propose as a solution to the problem of raw resources and like? For instance, 70% of all lithium in the world comes from Bolivia. I mean, we just basically orchestrated a coup to get at it. Like, what do we do in those instances where we have raw materials that originate outside the United States, but we're going to do local manufacturing? How, how, do, you, how do you square that circle without having some sort of international solidarity? That's,
1: that's an important, uh, important issue. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about a full retrenchment. I do think as uh, international cooperation and support is gonna be critical, especially when you're talking about climate. I mean, that's gonna simply, much like this pandemic, require an international solution, of course. Um, I do think that uh, there are uh, maybe more solutions than, 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 than you think around this. So, for example, one of them, the big ones that gets talked about is rare earth minerals, uh, most of which are mined in China. Uh, this was a US technology, rare earth magnets, that uh, a hedge fund sold off uh, from uh, a plant in Indiana called MagnaQuench uh, and and sent all the jobs and all of uh, the, the factories and the know-how overseas, and now China has cornered the market on rare earth minerals. Well, there is a rare earth mine, just because they're rare earth doesn't mean they're actually rare. They're actually all over the world. Uh, and there is a mine in California that's being restarted, so um, uh, sometimes those things uh, seem like constraints, but they're not really. I mean, one of the problems is that a lot of the reasons these these resources uh, migrate to uh, developing or emerging countries is because they're very dirty to mine. They're 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 hard to get at, and uh, you know the the having an, uh, uh, high level environmental standards doesn't not always equate with them uh and 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 that's one where i think we need uh you know so a global leveling up of certain standards to uh ensure that we're not creating you know slave labor with this resource extraction around the world um these are hard problems and uh there's no real one solution to all of them uh, and and you know uh, maybe this is an inadequate answer to your question, but uh, I do think that there's a mix that can be <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. It, there's a mix though that can be brought to bear between international cooperation and also insourcing and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, maintaining those those uh, supply relationships uh, with those various actors
0: all i can say is that you know despite both uh, both biden and trump being quote unquote tough on china rhetorically none of them has spoken out on the the ccp uh, destroying the printing presses at the epic times or epoch times' uh, headquarters And I've seen approximately I've seen approximately 17,000 YouTube ads about these fucking printing presses being destroyed. And so if if one of these candidates does not address that soon, I'm just going to start losing my mind. But you know, just because we're running out of time, we you know we've been at it for about ninety minutes now. And I don't. I know that you're a busy, busy man. We're all we're all quite busy. Well, that's not true. It's the pandemic, so I I work from I work yeah I work from home now. Yeah, so I'm not really doing do anything. anything at all. But yeah, but you know, for the sake of narrative, we're all quite busy. Uh, you know. And so I guess just to like to sort of uh, loop this back circle back around to the beginning and sort of like close out, uh, everyone get their final thoughts out. My fear, I think, with Biden Democratic Party is that they're going to still try to find a, a third way solution there. That just they're going to try to find a way to, you know, speak to the left, but also govern to the right, which is only going to end up, you know, in the context of 25 percent, 20 percent unemployment, uh, student loans going into like rapid, uh, rapid uh, unpayment, you know, housing bubble. Only going to empower the far right, which ends, you know, which ends in this case with something worse than Trump, you know, uh, which and who only knows who's going to be running in thousand twenty four for the Republicans at that point. But I don't know if anyone has anyone any final thoughts about what we've been talking about
3: just that like uh, drawing a line is something that uh the liberal left of and center or whatever of the united states has struggled with for a long time of just saying this is unacceptable like they understand the concept of lesser evilism but the concept that at some point something becomes unacceptable doesn't seem to ring a bell so the adage of you know if your friends jumped off a bridge would you jump off too it seems that the democratic party essentially says well as long as we voted for it then we might that's that, those are the rules so we're all going to Jump and it. There doesn't seem to be anything that reaches a level of unacceptable. Whether that's you know the various uh, rhetoric from certain politicians compared to the performance that they put out and the policies that they end up uh, pushing forward, or the uh, disconnect from the kind of real world conditions that people are experiencing and for uh, the kind of results that they're getting. And what that comes to my mind is the pushing for more paycheck or more uh, relief checks to go out before the first relief checks have even arrived for lots of people without really an acknowledgement or recognition of the catastrophic consequences that that has on people's day to day finances. And, uh, I guess there's, a the larger kind of thing that I think concerns me that is wrapped up in this narrative is FDR also in order to enact his, uh, changes, uh, you know, He also interned a bunch of Japanese people, uh, did not allow uh, Jewish refugees to come to the United States, uh, started the the M project to try and, you know, figure out how you could disperse them so that they didn't become a a large group. He also left out large swaths of, uh, black and other minority veterans from the kind of critical policies that developed the middle class that has essentially turned to the economy now and said, you know, I've got mine and now, you know, you need to go back to work for a minimum wage. That's going to be, hasn't been raised in years and is totally inadequate. And so, uh, I think it's really important that when we look back to these types of, uh, critical decision moments as kind of guidelines or templates to what we can do moving forward that we recognize the shortcomings and we avoid those pitfalls and we be wary of what kind of concessions Joe Biden or whoever represents an oppositional figure or a progressive figure is willing to make to the opposition in order to achieve them
2: i see the potentiality for us to be going towards a a bad form of nationalism and and i see that really clearly because like I follow a bunch of people who used to be Bernie people who are now Trump people, and the things that they talk about and the things that they are always mentioning. And even for example, like stuff that Tucker Carlson talks about on television, like all of those tie in to recognizing the problems that we are we have been talking about for this past like hour or so. But yet the solutions that they justify or the solutions that they're going towards, are always going to be the worst option for exactly those types of people and types of groups that Richard was just talking about. So I'm I'm not hopeful right now, and I'm incredibly anxious about the direction our society is moving, and probably for the first time in my life um, because of the economic situation that we're finding ourselves in. And uh, so I, I'm so glad that you came on our show, David, to talk to us about this, because you've been one of the people who has been talking about this in a, a similar light as well. It, it
1: really is a, a jump ball. And I don't know how anybody can be super optimistic about really anything at a time when 20 million people last month uh, lost their jobs, when uh, we see the prospect of millions of businesses shuttering uh, permanently, when we see uh, 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 most of the things that were propping up the economy uh, over the last uh, uh, couple decades, whether it's tourism or, uh, uh, you know, our our resurgence in energy uh, or whatever, uh, probably falter in a big, big way. Uh, uh, The the amounts of debt that was built up within the corporate sector and, and how that can play out it's another big problem that we're going to have to navigate. Um, I don't know how optimistic you can be about any of this. Uh, we, we, and, and, and let's not forget the public health crisis that is going on right now, which has already cost 80,000 people their lives and probably will cost at least that many more uh, their lives uh, uh, to come. And, and so uh, it's a very difficult and challenging time. And we often sort of uh, push that to the side uh, and, and we start thinking about the future and what, what the next several months and years are going to bring and what direction the country will go in and, you know, in the here and now, uh, uh, it it's, it's really just a, uh, uh, an absolute devastating catastrophic crisis. Um, so, you know, where we will be in the future, we can debate that. And I think we've had a, a good discussion about that. Uh, uh but you know what what is happening is 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 very painful and uh it's going to uh, take a long time for it to get better and the hope is that when it does uh, it will uh, be in a context where the country will be better prepared and uh, have its prosperity better shared than it did leading into this which is causing so many of the problems that we're having.
0: Well, I think that's a wonderful place to leave it on. Thank you for joining us, David, Dan. Uh, We will link all of your information in the bio, the little sort of blurb section of this episode. So people who want to keep in contact with your work and follow the prospect and also buy a copy of your book will be able to do so with as little uh, proactivity on their part as possible which I find makes it a lot easier for them to sort of accomplish it. Oh, yes. And of course, we want to give a special shout out to friend of the show, Andrew Perez, uh, who works at the Democratic Policy Center with uh, David Sirota, who has been following this, you know, this and other issues when it comes to money for uh, quite a long time. So, yeah, I mean, just thank you for joining us. And I hope everyone enjoyed listening to the show. I, w- I hope everyone learned something. I learned something. I had seen Unbreakable like a hundred times. I had no idea that the guy, you know, that Samuel Jackson's character uh, was some sort of conservative weirdo. It's, it, it, it's great. You know, it's, it's always fun to learn new things.